A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you love classic works but hope for a great teacher to guide you through them? Would it be helpful to see how great thinkers have approached the same subject? The Cersei Press is excited to announce a new book by C. Scott and David V. Hicks. The Tyrant Julius Caesar, as told by Plutarch and Shakespeare. The Hicks brothers bring their experience translating and annotating Plutarch in The Statesman and The Lawgivers to this unique look at one of history's most divisive and interesting figures. Starting with their highly readable translation of Plutarch's Life of Caesar and the wealth of insights provided by their thorough annotations, maps, and diagrams, the Hicks then turn their attention to Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. This annotated text of the play is unique, comparing Shakespeare's rendition of Caesar's life to Plutarch's, noting his sources, and considering the Elizabethan story in light of its classical origins. Not confined to literature, history, linguistics, or philosophy, this work bridges all these disciplines, making it an exemplary example of the study of humanities. For a limited time, the tyrant Julius Caesar is available at a discounted price. To claim your copy and the Hicks previous Plutarch titles, head to CerseInstitute.org backslash books. It is strange, my Theseus, that these lovers speak of. More strange than true. I never may believe these antique fables, nor these fairy toys. Lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies, that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. One sees more devils than vast hell can hold. That is the madman. The lover, all as frantic, sees Helen's beauty in a bra of Egypt. The poet's eye, in a fine frenzy of rolling, doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. And as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns into shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Hello and welcome to The Play's The Thing. You have joined us for our final act of William Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. And you are at the podcast that covers all things Shakespeare. You just heard a brief conversation between... Theseus and Hippolyta near the end of the play in which they have heard all of these fantastical dreams from the lovers, which we got to see all of it kind of through this magic sprinkling of fairy juice upon the eyes. There's all sorts of people falling in love with other people that wasn't expected. And now Theseus kind of seems to apprehend this. Lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. And I want to welcome back our guests, 
Ian Andrews, Emily Andrews, Heidi White. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so glad to have you for Act 5 of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Glad to be here. Are you sad that we're uh, at the last act? Or you kind of feel like, no, it's time to put a bow on this thing. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Nobody likes to leave the green world. Yeah, we saw plenty of green world. I want to start you guys on this, this monologue by Theseus. I I found it. It's great. There's a famous line in here. Lovers and madmen have such seething brains. If Shakespeare camps on anything in his his plays, it's this, that lovers and madmen have such seething brains. But it kind of created a little bit of a question for me. Like, is what does Theseus actually think about romance and madness? Are they kind of the same thing? I mean, or... Is this some wisdom? Is is his assessment of the poet and the madman and the lover true? Is it foolish? Or is he just saying, look, each have their own vision of reality? Is it a fanciful vision? Or is there something about the imagination and that vision of reality that is more resonant with the human experience than just raw facts? Ian... Yeah. What is it? Solve this dilemma for us. <laughs> I, I will do my best. I. It's such a good question. Um, I think the first time I read this, and, I, I, and I'm reading it over again now, um, I wonder at Theseus's attitude. He seems a little dismissive. And how could you not mm. be? I mean, the stories that he's hearing about what has just taken place sound crazy. They're crazy. And, yeah. And, um, and so I wonder if if more than cool reason every comprehends is actually an earnest line from him, or if it's somewhat sarcastic. Um, And so I I don't know if we can identify the voice of Theseus in this scene as the voice of the playwright, um, Mm. whether he's commenting on, on reality, or if this is, uh, if this is a, a line from a character who doesn't know what we know about the ways that these lovers have been manipulated by forces outside their control. Because he doesn't know. He hasn't been privy to all these things that we have seen. He's just hearing this all secondhand. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I probably would think they were all crazy, too. Right. They have such seething brains. Um, I want to just really quickly cover our plot in this act. It's very brief. Not much needs to happen. We've been looking forward to this play that's going to be produced and acted by which is very kind of, funny. Yeah, it's very, <laughs> it's very, very funny. Very it's funny, very yeah. funny, and it really pays off. Um, so the act goes like this. Theseus kind of, what, what we just heard at the top of the act, he kind of dismisses his lover's account, or maybe he takes it seriously, we don't really know, of their night's experience, and then he has to make a choice. Which of these plays are we going to see? And there's a handful of different plays, and he makes a selection, and finally he selects on this play that we know is going to be a disaster. And it's such a disaster (laughs) that it's wonderful. So, Pyramus and Thisbe is the night's entertainment. And it's so ridiculous that the guests can't help but just constantly make commentary about how bad it is. And yet somehow it turns out to be really great. It's a really pleasurable experience for everybody. So after the play, our, our newly married couples retire to bed 
and we get our last glimpse of the fairies led by Titania and Oberon. They bless these three marriages and Puck returns and Puck closes out the play with a very famous monologue that we'll talk about a little bit at the end. And that's what we have to kind of wrap up A Midsummer Night's Dream. And it's a lovely close. And I think kind of for, I wonder if this is true, the first time the magical world and the real world kind of commingle for a little bit during the blessing of these couples. Mm-hmm. I want to say something though that I read this week about this play and it made me feel kind of justified. It made me feel not quite so dumb, Emily, that I constantly get confused about this play. (laughs) So here it is from Nori Epstein on this play. Here's what she says. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare does something with his two central pairs of lovers that he has not done before and would only do once again with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern from Hamlet. He creates characters who are interchangeable. Lysander loves Hermia, Hermia Lysander, Demetrius also loves Hermia, Helena's the odd woman out, is infatuated with Demetrius, but any combination would serve the purposes of the plot. No matter how many times, this is the part that made me feel justified, no matter how many times you read the play you'll get Hermia and Helena confused. And the same (laughs) is true of the men. Lysander could suddenly become Demetrius and the audience wouldn't be any wiser. So, Emily, we finished the play. Do we agree with this? I'm going to tell you right now, I agree with this assessment. Like They're just interchangeable, right? Um, Does it make these characters one-dimensional? How does it impact the play as a whole? Does it cast like a certain vision of love that we should embrace or reject? So I'm asking you, like, I'm just taking for granted, Emily, that Shakespeare seems to hold these two pairs of lovers as just interchangeable widgets that can kind of be swapped. <laughs> what, what's the purpose? What's, what's, why, why? Yeah, I affirm that Helen and Helena and Hermia and that they're, completely i would never remember like in two i'm tomorrow i'm not going to remember who is who <laughs> right, um, right. tomorrow i will have forgotten this <laughs> but ian and i were debating this question actually before we got on and i don't know that i have a very firm answer to it but he said something that has really got me thinking which is um they there are actually distinguishing features of them in the play even though they serve the same functions helena is tall Hermia mm. is short. Uh, they're light and dark. I think you got those backwards, actually. Did I <laughs> well, and that goes to Tim's point. But Right, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Demetrius is maybe, um, they both have, he and Lysander have uh, sickly versions of love at the beginning, but one is disdainful and the other may be overly ideal- idealistic. Uh, and the but the problem is um because they're indistinguishable uh, the result is the gods behave toward them in the same way that they mm. their experience of what it means to love requires the same treatment at the hands of the gods and so i wonder if we're seeing them more from the perspective of from above rather I than see. as individuals I like that. That makes a lot of sense to me. 
That makes a lot of sense to me. So we, in a, in a way, are with Titania and Oberon and maybe even Puck a little bit, kind of looking down um, upon these actors, not as playthings, but to some degree as like subjects, I guess, is the way. And, and our action upon them is going to have effects. Right. But to some degree, their personal agency is a little bit muted. Yeah, I kind of think of it in the same way as the audience viewing the play within a play here at the end, or like the 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 audience within the play, like uh, um, Theseus and Hippolyta and them, they're viewing the this play going on that's supposed to be a tragedy. Mm-hmm. But as they view it, it's a comedy to them. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if the same thing, like to us, Demetrius Lysander, Helena and Hermia, that's a comedy, but to them, like it's a deep tragedy. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And so like to combine that idea with with what Theseus says in that opening monologue, uh, if we do grant him permission to be the voice of of Shakespeare, which may be a chancy thing, but for the moment, let's do that. Yeah. Um, it's it is somewhat compassionate then through that lens, because the experience that they've had, though it sounds completely wild is certainly one where they are in the grip of forces beyond their control. Mm-hmm. And that is how it feels to be a lover. Mm. That is how it feels to, to have the, the weight of your happiness and future joy in the hands of another mortal that you right. cannot control, right? This, this is a feeling we all identify with. Um, and so maybe as we, as we look at the play and look at the activity of the green world, which ends with benevolence, right? As we'll get mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. um, Maybe Shakespeare's giving us a vision of love as something to be embraced, even in its insanity, yeah. because it makes of you exactly the kind of supplicant that you are, whether you know yeah. it or not, right? And that does make me want to kind of put put Shakespeare into Theseus's words. So a little more from the end of that monologue, the poet's eye in a fine frenzy rolling doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. And as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing, a local habitation and a name. I mean, surely that fits Shakespeare's goals or his, his mode of operation as a playwright. And yeah, I, I tend, Ian, to take this seriously. Yeah. I, I tend to take it. I tend to put Shakespeare um, in the body of Theseus for this monologue. Well, I think he makes more sense in Theseus's body than Oberon's. For sure. Um, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> As authority yeah, figures I think that's go. that's right. But it also brings up an interesting point. Like Emily was saying, we've got a play within a play. Um, but then also because of the presence of Athens outside the green world, it's almost like there's another story frame like the highest story frame is Athens and then we dive into the green world and then we get a play within a play. And, and so we can make all kinds of comments about Theseus and whether he's a wise ruler and whether his um, early alliance with Aegeus was, was actual compassion or not. And that sort of thing. But all of those are happening from inside the frame narrative. And if we take a step back, maybe he is the voice of Shakespeare, right? Maybe his comments about, about love and poetry and madness are, are the real word from the play. I want to hear what Heidi has to say it, about, I can't look into her eyes and know what she's thinking, which is like kind of hard, <laughs> but to your point, Ian, like I, 
um, I, I think there's a kernel of truth in what he's saying. I just don't trust his value judgment. He's saying mm-hmm. these things are, this is not to be trusted. This is foolish. The man, man, the lover, and the poet. These are foolish things. But I think those are actually, he says, uh, more strange than true. I think Shakespeare would say more true than strange. Yeah. About or these maybe things. more true because strange. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> being a human being, hard to understand. <laughs> right, Better right. to experience it than try and explain it. I'd like to turn our attention toward the play. And if our listeners are thinking, what happened to Heidi? She's really quiet on this <laughs> I was subject. just wondering that. <laughs> yeah. It's because we just lost her. She is recording oh, from no. Arizona and we don't know exactly where she is. So we're, I think she's going to come back at some point. Um, meanwhile, the kind of, I'll ask this as a question. Is the play within the play the highlight of the whole play? Is this the apex of the play or is this meant to be kind of um, an interlude, an interlude, you know, kind of on the way toward marriage, but it's not really the apex of the play. How, how would you read? What is the apex of the play? If it's not this play within the play. On this reading, I was actually, this is the first time I've thought this, but I think I'm inclined to see the play within the play as the key for interpreting the rest of the play. Uh, uh, a tragical comedy. Uh, what does he say? A, a Mary or um, let's see, what is it that the uh, Philostrati says about it? But the play within the play is the interpretive framework for the whole thing. Is what you're wondering? Well, at, at the very least, and she was saying it a little bit earlier. At the very least, it gives us a clue as to where Shakespeare imagines the reader to be in all of this. Mm. Like what our posture is what vantage point we're looking at all of this from. Mm. Um, just like the, just like Theseus and Hippolyta and the rest are watching this play and commenting on it and seeing this. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible story. Right. Right. <laughs> like the, right. It's the story. I mean, it's, it's Romeo and Juliet uh, in, in miniature, right. Mm-hmm. The, the two lovers end up committing suicide all because of a misunderstanding. I mean, a tragedy for sure, but it's received as a comedy. And this, and the same thing is true of us, of us watching all of the, the confusion and the hullabaloo of Lysander and Hermia and Demetrius and Helena. And so I think that's the main thing is that it gives us a, it gives us firm ground to stand on to be interpreters of the rest of the action. Yeah. Yeah. I think Theseus isn't necessarily a very trustworthy commentator. And even though he says a lot of kind things about them, uh, I don't take him necessarily at his word, but I do think that he maybe stands in as a representative of a more, of someone who would say those things and maybe mean them more um, mm. that as he views the the artisans the, doing the play, he says something like, if we imagine them to be as excellent as they think of themselves and they are truly excellent men, um, he's laughing at them. But I think that the play hints at a audience of a, of a spectator of all the ongoings of this play and of humanity that would say that and, and mean it and mean it kindly. Yeah. Yeah. I want to observe something about this play, but I want to kind of go circuitously to it. I have taught acting. I've taught Shakespeare acting. In fact, I have a little website, timteachesshakespeare.com. And I have a little method, and my method, I think I've told the two of you about it, is 
start with high school students and middle school students by encouraging them to give the worst possible performance that you <laughs> that they can give. I it kind of this. liberates them because <laughs> yeah. like the biggest thing you guys have been in the classroom plenty to know with young people, one of the biggest obstacles to acting well is the gaze of your fellow students. You feel embarrassed. You don't really want to go for it. And so I kind of solve for that by giving them permission. In fact, a mandate to act as poorly as they can possibly act. Yeah. And it tends to work, Emily. It It tends to work. (laughs) Um, I also have in writing classes in the past started students to kind of just take the pressure off my freshman students in college to have them write the worst paragraph that they can write. (laughs) And it just, it kind of, both of them are exercises in just kind of like loosening the muscles and relaxing and like not feeling pressure. I feel like someone gave those instructions, do the worst that you can possibly do <laughs> with this play. To the wall. They gave them to, to the, the wall, wall at least. <laughs> and so I wonder if we could make like a list if we were writing a play and we had to do the worst job that we could possibly do when we took this play as our instruction booklet, what would we be, what would be the kind of criteria of terrible? <laughs> that we see in this play. I mean, Shakespeare has, he's having so much fun with it. He's having so much fun writing a disaster of the play. What are the things that stuck out for you guys? Like that made the disaster really disastrous. Tell don't show. Oh, 100% Emily. <laughs> yeah. I love when the wall comes up and says, so I'm a wall. Uh, and when I go like this with my fingers, there's a hole in the wall. So yep. don't miss that part. <laughs> yep. Totally. Moonlight does something similar. Yep. Explain, then explain, Moonlight explain what he's doing. Goes off stage early so that presumably the actors are all blind to what's happening in the next scene, even though they need to be able to see it. And these, I think it's these years that says, ah, the next part will happen by starlight. Then. <laughs> this is what uh-huh. I mean. Though. Don't, don't you think God looks at it this, this way sometimes? Like, I am a lion and I am scary, but don't worry. Everything is going to be fine. Like, I'm a wall. I'm important. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good yeah. question, too. And it, it's, I, I just, this is the, it's such a great, great scene. I've acted this scene before and it gets invariably so many laughs because it's so bad. It's like a child writing in, you know, writing a play in crayon or something like that. Um, And I love it. And I think in a way, there's something really beautiful about our most, um, our least educated probably from the lowest classes actors in a strange way being celebrated by the highest royals Mm -hmm. in the land. Something really lovely about that. Yep. There is. And I, the other thing, and Emily has already said it better than I can, I think, but I'm still just chewing on it. Um, What these terrible actors, these inexperienced actors are doing is still a just representation of humanity and of human mm. emotion. And, and, and it's actually none the worse for being a caricature. It's in some ways more accurate for being a caricature. If what we've just seen happen in the green world is to be believed, right? Lysander and Demetrius and, and Helena and Hermia have all just 
expressed the loudest human emotions that attend love or love spurned that can you can possibly imagine. Yeah. They have been as children led around by the nose. And, yeah. and so when we watch the play within a play, um, I think we're forced to look at ourselves and say, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that I, this reminds me of me. And mm. this is maybe why Emily doesn't trust Theseus, because I don't think that he's doing that. <laughs> I think he's, I don't think think he's standing he's in judgment. That, Ian, you don't think that he is like having a look at himself? What do you mean? Right, exactly. I think he he takes his humor, and maybe I'm maybe I'm out over my skis here, but he, he takes his humor in somewhat in kind of a mean-spirited way. Um, ah. He's condescending to the players. Um, but I wonder if we are as readers. I don't necessarily think we're being invited to condescend to the players. I think we're being mm. called to identify with them instead. You have a part to play mm-hmm. that has been written for you. Mm-hmm. And the chances are you are acting at just about like the wall and the lion. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. absent, absent the green world and its verdict on you, which is we will care for you. This marriage will be blessed. Your children will have no blemishes. We're all in trouble. Sorry, Emily, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I think that's lovely. I don't have much to add. I was just thinking about the prologue. I love the part where Quince delivers this prologue and if you read it if you take out all the periods the points i think theseus <laughs> calls it it's not too bad but he puts the emphasis in all the wrong pluses you know oh. <laughs> that's it's the same idea we do that too but it's brilliant it's a great piece of comedy um the close of the play is kind of given to these the fairy queen and king um when they, after the play has ended, and Oberon and Titania, they get to bless Theseus' his home in anticipation of his marriage. And Puck tells the audience that he is sent with broom before to sweep the dust behind the door. I'm going to play just this little bit of audio just because it's so, so lovely. Now the hungry lion roars and the wolf behowls the moon. Whilst the heavy ploughman snores, all with weary task for done. Now the wasted brands do glow, whilst the screech owl, screeching loud, puts the wretch that lies in woe, in remembrance of a shroud. Now it is the time of night that the graves, all gaping wide, every one lets forth his sprite in the churchway paths to glide. And we fairies that do run by the triple Hecate's team on the presence of the sun following darkness like a dream. Now a frolic! <laughs> Not a mouse shall disturb this hallowed house. <laughs> I am sent with broom before to sweep the dust behind the door. Not a mouse shall disturb this hallowed house. I am sent with a broom before to sweep the dust behind the door. So this statement, is it meant to be taken literally? Or... Is Puck just continuing his work of meddling in the lives of mortals? You know, he's like, is he, how do we, how do we take this? This is kind of like a broader interpretive question about like, what is, what is Puck's character? How are we supposed to view it? And it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. And he gets the last word. I mean, that's, he does get the last word. That's so Mm -hmm. important. And so I'm confused. I mean, I, I echo your question rather than answering it. Emily, help us. I don't know that I get. And where's Heidi when we need her? Yeah, exactly. Where's Heidi? 
I I know he's very concerned, like all of the end courses are with making amends. They always want to say, I think Prospero says this at the end of the Tempest. They're always coming on stage to say, this was pretty bad. We'll do better next time. I promise. And like, yeah. Um, or uh please be kind to us don't don't judge us too harshly but uh while that's funny and maybe meant literally uh there's also uh they're asking us to critique kindly as well Mm. I, i think shakespeare is always kind of giving us cues to how to interact with his art and he really wants us to do it gently and he promises that if we do it gently, he will mend the things mm-hmm. that are broken mm-hmm. that we see. And Pucks or Robin says something similar here. If we shadows have offended this, but this in all is mended, that while you have slumbered here, while these visions did appear, yeah, yeah, it, it's I think bringing up um, the tempest is exactly right, Emily. Both plays are fantastical plenty of magic and i don't think it's a coincidence that both of them have the most famous closings in all of shakespeare's mm-hmm. plays and i wonder if part of the reason they're so famous is because shakespeare is kind of showing the method of his art to us you know he's a magic maker more than anything else he's a magic maker a magic maker with a purpose of course to entertain but he has so much more serious intentions. And I sometimes see, of course, I see Shakespeare's words in Theseus, who's maybe the most serious character in the play, but you also see him in Puck. And I think most brightly in, um, oh gosh, why am I forgetting his name? He just Prospero. He, it just seems like he is Prospero in, mm-hmm. in The Tempest. Now, this play is written many, many years before The Tempest, and I sometimes think that um, by the time we get to The Tempest, Shakespeare has really, now he's a complete master. You know, he's kind of getting his feet underneath him at this point, but by the time we get to The Tempest, a complete, the master of his craft, maybe for all time. Yeah, but this is maybe a way to think about this play is kind of like proto-Tempest in a way. I love that. Yeah, I like that's it really too. interesting. It, similarly, Puck and Prospero start the play by using their magic with good intent but poor mm. execution, mm. and uh, they apologize for it in the end. And maybe that's it's similarly to Prospero laying down his books or burying his books mm. and requiring prayer to avoid yeah. despair. Puck is doing yeah. something similar here. Maybe so. Maybe so. I want to talk a little bit about the final words. Um, Yeah, he's telling the audience to understand the play the same way that Bottom understands his dreams. If we shadows Mm -hmm. have offended, this but this and all is mended. Um, Is Shakespeare suggesting that magic exists in real life in these final lines? Yes. I've heard that from you before, Ian. You think so? <laughs> in various ways. I mean, in various ways, you've you've said that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and it stretches. Um, it's not a perfect application of the idea. But when I read the play this time, I could not stop, especially given all the talk about the green world and 
and we, we've likened the green world, at least in this play, to to the spiritual world, right? Mm-hmm. We've got the the temporal and the worldly, and that's Athens, and then we've got the green world, and that's where that's where God does things to people, yeah. to unsuspecting yeah. people. And if that's the case, Puck is the Holy Spirit, right? Mm. He's that member of the Godhead, um, the one who who executes and applies all of the edicts of the Father. And leave it to Ian to make like the most aggressive claim. I know it's like the most aggressive claim. Of time. Puck is the Holy Spirit. And like I said, not a perfect, not a perfect comparison, but I do think that Shakespeare consistently throughout his corpus writes about a spirit world that is real, that does impact the the temporal, that mm-hmm. that sticks its face through the red fabric of the world and and looks at you every so often. Um, and I think, so yeah, I, I do think Shakespeare implies that that readers should be on the lookout for just such a confusing and yet uh, and yet beautiful and transformative look at the spirit world in the details well, of their lives. To your point, Ian, I'm thinking of John 3. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born of the spirit. You know, I mean, this, right. this in a way yeah. is a perfect match for what you've asserted about Puck. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I she, it seems like Shakespeare's always doing this a little bit. He's got his, he's got, he's got a, a pinky finger just sort of draped in the theology bucket, and every so often he oh, stirs it up. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. He does it all the time. He's yeah. so well versed in um, the scriptures and in theological concepts, and yeah, he likes to stir in some kind of. Um, he likes to stir in kind of like ancient polytheistic views sometimes and just kind of stir it up, you know, because I wonder what they'll make of this. <laughs> yeah. Right. Have fun with this yeah. in 400 years. And that's exactly. what we're doing. <laughs> um, uh, a big question to close. How has your vision of this play changed during the last five weeks that we've been discussing this play, if if you can recall what you thought about the play before, how is it different from what you think about the play now? I, I have said that I have remained confused about the two pairs of lovers throughout, throughout the whole play and this discussion. I still remain confused about them, but I have... I do see a lot more method in this play, I think, that I have seen in previous viewings and readings of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Like, um, Shakespeare has intentions with the confusions. I think I chalked his um, confusing lovers to be, how do I say it? maybe like a little bit of carelessness on his part. And I don't think that anymore. I think that that is thematically part of what he is trying to do. So I'm wondering, have you guys had any other recent revelations about the play? I think when I thought of the, of the play, I always, I just think of it as the fairy play Mm. and the one that ennobles the, the spirit world, which is true. But this time I was really struck by actually like it, it's the the little and the lowest that are most mm. ennobled by this play that the, the hero maybe is actually bottom the S. Yeah. Not necessarily Puck. 
And do you think on previous readings or viewings, Emily, you just would not have paid as much attention to bottom? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that has kind of, uh, with age and life experience, I've come mm-hmm. to identify more with bottom. I see more mm-hmm. of myself in mm-hmm. bottom now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ian, what about for you? Oh man. So I, I haven't read this play in a long time. Um, not since college, I don't think. And the, and then in the intervening years, I saw it once. So my, my most recent experience until reading it now was seeing the play. And, um, and I took it as a comedy. It, yeah. And not a very deep one at that. Um, in particular, Bottom the Ass was a comic diversion. And that was, that was pretty much all. Um, this reading, largely because of the three of you helping me along, it's really exploded as I think a very deep play. Um, the tension between the green world and and the world of Athens, the the ordered world and the disordered world, uh, yeah. and and the way he turns those ideas on their heads and says, "Look for order in the chaos," because that's often where the face of God is. Mm. That's a beautiful idea and not one that I had seen in this play mm. before. Yeah. I've seen it in I've seen it enough in in his other work to believe that I'm not grasping at straws seeing it here. Um, but the, it hadn't been unlocked for me before. Yeah. Yeah. I wish that we could hear from Heidi. I know. We've just yeah. lost Heidi. We should Heidi make her lost. record her thoughts, her answer to this yes. last question and like add it in, like stitch it in later. That would be kind of fun. That'd be kind of fun. I'll reach out to her and if we can do that. But uh, listeners, if you don't hear it, then you know what her answer was. <laughs> she can just go through and disagree with us and we can't answer. Well, she no, we just, should make like, her record it without listening to us first. Oh, I was oh, going to say, well, idea. she has privilege now. We like She right. can just tell us how we were wrong. And <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right. She can listen to it and amend our, yeah, this, but all this and all is mended. She can do that with our, yeah. with right. our thoughts. Exactly. Hey, you guys, where can we listen to your podcast? Tell our listeners where we can find you. Yeah, so we have a couple of different shows. Um, Bibliophiles is the main one. You can find that, Emily, wherever they would like to get podcasts, they can find it, right? It's true. Yeah, yeah bibliophiles on, on Spotify with an F, uh, because we're merry punsters over at Center for Lit. Um, and then our other show is entitled "How to Eat an Elephant," where we read long, intimidating, heavy, thick mm. tomes a little bit at a time. Um, and that's that's really fun as well. Both of those have Facebook groups that we'd love to hear from you guys on. But it, man, it sure has been a privilege to join you guys in the plays of thing. What a great yeah, show. Yeah, it's been really great. It's been really great. I will speak to Heidi, speak for Heidi, um, who is on Close Reads, a podcast that I also contribute to sometimes. They are reading A Diary of a Country Priest right now, which I'm hearing rave reviews of. I've never read that book, but I'm hearing wonderful things about it. Um, I mentioned my um, teaching of Shakespeare. If you'd like to know anything more about that, or if you would like, some really great free Shakespeare scenes that you can perform at family school, then go to Tim shakespeare.com. And I also tell you just a little bit about my methodology and yeah, you can also contact me there and I'd love to hear from you. Meanwhile, we are going to close with this famous ending monologue from Robin Puck. If we shadows have offended. Uh, Once again, thank you for joining us for A Midsummer Night's Dream. And as always, happy reading. If we shadows have offended, think but this. 
and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here, while these visions did appear. And this weak and idle theme, no more yielding but a dream. Gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. And as I am an honest puck, if we have an earned luck now to scape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long. Else the puck a liar call. So, good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends.